Well, a number of weeks ago, I had the idea of going on a solo hike. <clears throat> I'm an introvert, so that seemed like a good idea. Being alone in the woods, quiet place, not a care in the world. Time to reflect, perhaps some time to pray, you know, just to, to be alone, refresh, recharge. What I realized, though, is I don't like being alone in the woods. <laughs> it's a little creepy to me. Now, I'm usually on alert when I'm in the woods, even with others, but being alone put it on a whole other level for me. I mean, I had no one to talk to or listen to as an introvert. I I like to let other people talk. Um, I was thinking that I had no one to help me if I fell or if there was danger. I had no one to bounce ideas off of for where to go next, what path to take, that kind of thing. No one encouraged me when I felt like stopping and turning around. It was just me out there in the woods. It was really quiet. <clears throat> well, in thinking about this message, I realized that one of the most encouraging things about our faith is that we don't have to do it alone. In fact, if there's anything that we've learned from our study of Ephesians, it is that unity or community is not something that we have to manufacture. It's something that is already ours in Christ. We are a body with members. Paul uses that analogy. We are different parts of a building as God has, has put together, Christ being the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets, and he, he adds to that building uh, over time. We are members of God's family, members of his household, children, collectively brothers and sisters of one another. Paul does caution us in chapter 4 to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, but we realize that unity really only needs to be preserved if you already have it, Right? So we have an organic unity in the body of Christ already. That's one of the benefits of being in Christ. We're unified in the spirit. We're not to think of ourselves as lone hikers in the midst of a vast, creepy woods. Ephesians is a reminder that we are united with each other and that we need each other. And to the point of this message... This morning, as we seek to navigate the difficulties that this life presents us, like many of the pitfalls that one might encounter while hiking, we need endurance. And in order to endure, we must not, again, think of ourselves as lone hikers in a creepy woods, but rather as runners in a team race collectively striving for our reward. Now, I want you to get this point. I think that we in the church will immediately recognize and understand the analogy of us being in a race, But often when we think about being in a race and comparing that to the Christian life, we usually think about a single race, a solitary race, a solo race. The writer of Hebrews presents a picture not of a solitary race, but a team race, a team sport, like one of those baton races where there's someone who starts out and as they go around the track, they meet up with someone else. Their leg of the journey is done. They hand off the baton to someone else. That person goes next and so on and so forth until you get to the end. If this imagery holds up, well, what are the implications of this for our endurance? How does this inform our ability to run our leg of the race well, to endure to the end? What are the keys to endurance in the Christian life is the question. And we've heard of those even recently who fail to endure. Pastors, church leaders, friends and families who have become ensnared in sin. Pastors, church leaders, friends and families who have allegedly renounced the faith. About a week or so ago, a relatively young man who was a pastor who was said to have committed suicide. The struggles in this life are real. We remember 9-11 this week also. 
an event in the life of our nation that claimed countless lives caused us to all reevaluate our national concept of safety and security. Otherwise, regularly, we suffer the loss of loved ones, deteriorating health, debilitating sickness, being shunned by family for one's faith, coming to church without one's spouse or children for their lack of faith, the loss of a job, financial issues, marital troubles, various kinds of interpersonal conflicts, frustration over singleness, misunderstandings and troubles on the job, besetting sins, and so on and so on and so on. How can we endure our leg of this journey, how can we endure to play our part well for the glory of God and the good of our team? Well, we'll find the answer in our passage this morning. If you haven't turned to Hebrews chapter 12, go ahead and turn there. I'm going to read, well, we'll read together verses 1 through 3. It's going to be a short text this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let us pray. Our God, we do thank you as we come before your word uh, once again for your word. We thank you for your truth. Thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus who prayed for us. Even before he um, endured the cross, he prayed for us that we would be sanctified, that we would be set apart, that we would be one even as you and he are one. He prayed this for our good. And so we know on this side of the cross that we do need your word to sanctify us. Your word is truth. God, help us in our hearts and in our minds to respond to your word as truth. Help us collectively to know that your word is truth and to encourage and exhort one another in your word, which is truth. Help us from this truth to learn what it means to endure to understand it, to be convicted in areas we need to be convicted, to be encouraged in areas where we need to be encouraged, and to see our need for one another as we seek to endure in this life. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. We pray, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, there are three main points in this text, three keys to endurance. The main exhortation that we read in verse one is let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run with endurance. This race is a term meant to summarize the whole of the Christian life and existence on this side of eternity. Run this race with endurance. The text answers how three things. Number one, learn from those who've gone before us. We see that in the first part of verse one. Number two, lay aside every weight and sin. We see that in the last part of verse one. And number three, look to Jesus. That's in verses two and three. Learn from those who've gone before us, lay aside every weight and sin, and look to Jesus. Now, about the book of Hebrews, there's a lot that we could say. The jury is still out on who wrote the book. There are a number of different options. I'm not going to go into them right now. What is clear is that the writer of Hebrews wrote this letter in order to encourage their audience, even referring to it as a brief word of exhortation at the end there. There are many difficult things that are said in the book of Hebrews, prompting many to wonder if he's writing to believers or unbelievers. There are a number of problem passages and countless, countless pages of commentary on all of those problem passages. 
What clear what is clear to me is that the writer of Hebrews is writing to encourage the believers in Christ. Even as he's coming to a close towards the end of the letter in chapter 10, he says this in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting our meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And a few verses down, verse 32, he says this, But recall the former days when you, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, the one who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. We can come to God by this new way, by the way that Jesus has given us. Hold fast to this confession. The one who promised is faithful. You suffered. You look forward to a better possession, a lasting one. Endure in that confidence. Do not throw it away. This is the message of Hebrews. You have need of endurance. You have need of an enduring faith. Don't give up. Don't give in. I believe you can endure. He's writing from that position as one who wants to encourage and exhort them because he sees that they are able to endure as believers. He believes that wholeheartedly. As a pastor, he's trying to encourage them. Endure. Persevere. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep trusting particularly in him. Don't fall away. Don't fall back into the old system of worship. Jesus supersedes all of this, and he is better. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, he says. And I say to you all this morning, you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what was promised. Let us together run this race with endurance. As we're trying to answer that question, how? How do we run with endurance? How do we endure? Let's look at our first point. Again, the first point is that we learn to endure. We endure by learning from those who have gone on before us. Look back at chapter 12, verse 1. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and I'm going to stop there. The therefore shows us grammatically that he's continuing a thought. There's no natural break here, even though this is a new chapter. He's continuing the thought from chapter 11, really the end of chapter 10. It goes something like this. You have need of endurance. Keep the faith. Scripture says, my righteous one shall live by faith. He says, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to preserve the soul. That is who we are. We are of that sort, that kind, that variety of person. And really, that kind of person is not new. We've seen them before. And so he goes through in chapter 11 and catalogs that kind of person, that kind of person who's had that kind of enduring faith. 
presents that as an illustration to us. He calls them the great cloud of witnesses. Their lives bear witness to what it means to live by faith and endure in faith. Without getting into too many of the weeds of chapter 11, that would be easy to do. Hebrews, in general, is a great segue for New Testament Christians to learn about Old Testament history, in particular as we delve into these stories. But he says that we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. These are more than just spectators looking down upon us. The implication is more that we are enabled also to look up at them, to derive strength from their story, to derive strength from the fact that they have endured. They've done this already. This is the image of a sports team perhaps playing on their home field, and um, they're surrounded by all of their people, uh, all of those who are from their city, their town, and they're cheering them on. And perhaps they're also surrounded on the sidelines. Sometimes you'll see older individuals who've played the sport and they're standing on the sideline. They're walking back and forth. They're yelling out and cheering for the people who are playing the sport today. This is the same idea here of this cloud of witnesses. As you read through the Hall of Faith, this cloud of witnesses, there are three things in particular that stand out that we can learn from them. First, they believed God. God spoke and they took him at his word. Their faith was informed not by wishful thinking or sentiment or some blind faith to an unknown God, but rather by truth. We are called believers because we believe in God and we believe God when he speaks. That leads us to the next thing that we can learn from them. Not only did they believe God, but they also trusted God to reward them for enduring in faith. There were many things that they could have done in the place of obeying the voice of God. Other things that would have been more enjoyable at the moment, but they chose to suffer without those things, to suffer for their faith in him, believing God for his promise of reward and persevering in obedience. They believe God and no matter how difficult, no matter how at times illogical it seemed to keep the faith, no matter how many people around them were telling them, you fool, curse God and die, they persevered in faith. They believed, they trusted until the end. Third, they believed even though they did not receive the reward in their day, at least not the fullness of their reward. And don't miss this. They were promised something by God. They suffered throughout their life in innumerable ways. They did not get what was promised before they died, and they were not told why. But they still trusted. They still believed. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Chapter 11, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things that were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. He says they all died in faith. I want to ask you, does this describe your faith? Do you believe God? Do you take God at his word? If you do believe him, do you believe that he will reward you for persisting in faith? And do you believe that his reward is better than anything else in this life? Some may say that they believe him, but they're not quite ready to give up their desires, the things that they cling to in this life, their passions. Moreover, are you willing to trust him even if you don't see the benefit or reward of trusting him in your lifetime? New Testament faith is not the prosperity gospel faith. It's not always going to be a bed of roses. You're not always going to get your best life now. Our best life, we know, is going to come then. Let me ask you another question to the point of this verse. How about the people you emulate, the people you look up to? What kind of people are they? 
The people whose life you want to model, the people who you want to go hear speak at a conference, are they the big name Christian speakers or some Christian artist, some celebrity or politician? Who do you follow? Who do you listen to in your podcast? Whose paper or book do you itch to read? What mind do you crave to hear? Whose life do you imitate? Is it the people like those described in Hebrews 11, people who believed God, people who trusted him to the degree that they gave up earthly pleasure looking to his reward, people who did not receive his reward in their lifetime and were content to die without it? The writer of Hebrews is telling us that this is the kind of faith that we should have. This, moreover, is the kind of faith that we should emulate and the kind of faith that we should encourage in one another. This is a widow who labors in prayer for the saints, who labors in service to the saints, finding comfort in the promises of God and his reward for serving his people, even if she never feels the same kind of fullness as she had before her loss. This is a homebound or sickly saint who does not grumble and complain that they don't, people don't come by to see them, which they should, but who instead take the time that they have to labor in prayer for the saints, to write notes of encouragement Exhortation to the saints who look for ways to serve when they can, trusting in the promises of God that it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is a married person whose spouse is unbelieving, who still comes faithfully to the fellowship, who labors in prayer for their spouse, who asks others in the body to pray for their spouse, who serves in ways that they can, trusting God's ability to, to save, even if they don't see it. This is a young person, perhaps single, in school or in the early ages of their career, who doesn't see a lot of people who look like them, in fact, most may be older, but who are convinced that we are supposed to love one another, no matter if we are in the same stage of life, who visits the orphans and widows in their distress, that's something we all ought to be doing, who serves in ways that they're able to, to their hurt, sacrificing time, energy, and effort, who looks for ways to be devoted to serving the needs of the church while they're unconcerned with the needs of a spouse because they see the greater benefit in serving Christ and his people over their desires. There are probably other illustrations. Paul said in our scripture reading for this morning, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. By this, he meant the pattern of pursuing Christ diligently, pursuing a deeper communion with him. Observe their faith and imitate their faith. Not the celebrity Christians. The faithful ones, the ones who show an evidence of enduring faith. Again, our life is not a singles, singles event. It is a team event. It is a team race with those who've gone on before us, who pass down the baton for us to take as we run our leg of the race. And we benefit from their faith, from the faithfulness of their race. We benefit from walking in their footsteps. Do you? Do you take advantage of those who've gone on before? You take advantage of their faith, the example of their faith. Do you seek them out? Or are you still trying to live life? This life of faith is a lone hiker in the wilderness. A few more points of application before we move on. Number one, study Christian history. We just read the Apostles' Creed earlier. There are many other such creeds. There's a lot of of history to our faith. A lot of people who believe the same things that we do, who've gone on before us, who have lived, suffered, and died, whose faith we can read about, we can learn about, we can be encouraged by. Read biographies of the saints. If it's too much for you to sit down with one of those thick biographies, I'd recommend the YWAM Publishers uh, set of biographies. It's called Christian Heroes Then and Now, I believe it is. And it goes through a whole host of different believers, and um, many of them who have lived and died and served and suffered 
And you can read about their faith. This particular series is, I think their reading level is something like, I don't know, middle school, high school, something like that. Um, But I read them. It's encouraging to me. Um, So I offer it to you as an option. Talk with older saints, older, more godly, mature saints about their lives. Ask them about their lives, how God showed himself faithful, what they learned. I've shared before that my wife and I have greatly benefited from such a relationship with some older saints we know. You older saints, reach out to those who are younger. Don't wait for them to come to you. Grab them up by the collar if you have to. And uh, talk to them about God's faithfulness. Encourage one another that this life is not all about you. You cannot do it alone. We're in a body. Encourage one another when you're in the midst of trial to think of others more than yourselves. Sometimes we need to be reminded to do that. Because it's easy to be caught within ourselves and, and to struggle and suffer as we think about ourselves and our plight And we have to work hard to think outside of ourselves. To seek strength from others. To be encouraged to believe God. To believe his promises. Let's move on to point number two. How can we endure? We endure by learning from those who've gone on before us. Number two, we endure by laying aside every weight and sin that easily ensnares us. Again, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We'll stop there. These are some of the hindrances to endurance. The imagery here harkens back to the ancient Olympic races when they ran naked in order to keep from being impeded by anything. They didn't want anything to hamper their ability to run the race. I want to make a point before I continue here. I feel as though this needs to be said. With respect to salvation and theology, we make a distinction between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We sang this morning, on Christ a solid rock I stand. Come praise and glorify our God who's poured out his blessings on us. He's adopted us, washed away our sins. He has redeemed us. He has guaranteed our salvation. We sing all praise to him, our great God, who purchased us and made us his forevermore. God sovereignly saves. God sovereignly preserves us in salvation. Jesus says in John 10 that it is the father who ultimately holds us in his hand from which no one can snatch us. There is no possible way for anyone to snatch us from the hand of our Father. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 8. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yet we also recognize that we've been given the responsibility in the context of that same salvation. We've been given a responsibility to pursue God. This is expressed clearly in passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. By grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, Paul says in verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared beforehand, just as much as he prepared us for salvation, just as much as he has by his grace saved us and set us apart in Christ, he's also prepared good works for us to walk in. That's our responsibility. That's our duty. To walk in those good works that he's prepared for us. We do not have to work for our salvation. We cannot. But we do work in our salvation. We do work as saved individuals. This is what the writer of Hebrews is getting at when he says, lay aside every weight and sin. That's our responsibility. There's action on our part. God does not promise that everyone will automatically get a pass on every struggle, every difficulty when they come to faith. He does not say to us that there's an easy button that we can push to get things done. 
I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with individuals who've concluded that salvation just doesn't work because they've tried it. I've tried to do this. I've tried to do that. People who are believers. And I just, I, I'm giving up right now because it just doesn't work for me. It's almost as if they've concluded that out of the millions and billions of people who've legitimately believed and been born again over the whole history of the people of God, that they are the one person who has God stumped. The one person who slipped under God's radar, whose salvation doesn't quite work. Our responsibility in salvation is not a one and done. The reality, believer, is that our responsibility in salvation abides with us until we go to glory. That is the nature of biblical faith. It is a faith that believes and obeys until the end, no matter what, no matter how you feel, no matter if it appears to work or not, you hear and you obey. You believe and you keep believing. You keep trusting. You never give up. You believe that his way is the way and you pursue it to the end. No excuses. Again, back to our text, he says, lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles. Now, Pastor Chris has actually spent a significant amount of time thinking on this issue, this concept of putting off and putting on, which I think is significant. I'll say here that the point is, again, that our responsibility as we run this race is to ensure that as far as it depends on us, that we remove any possible hindrances to running the race well. We are to lay aside. We are to intentionally remove from our person and from our path anything that would prevent us from running freely, from enduring in the faith. Specifically, he calls out every weight and sin which clings so closely, or in other translations, which so easily ensnares. I think that is probably more to the point. What is the weight and sin? Some see these two terms as distinct terms. Some say that the term is meant to qualify the term weight. In other words, Weight, which is sin, so they're not seeing much of a distinction there. It's just one is qualifying the other. Regardless, I tend to think that we come to the same conclusion. I prefer the former thought that there are some subtle distinctions intended because he does use two different words there. Weight is anything in general that hinders, perhaps things that are not necessarily sin and of themselves, but which do hinder, things which are not wrong, but which may distract, Last week, Pastor Chris mentioned a television programming, for example. Some of the shows that we watch are clearly sinful, right? Have clearly sinful content, yet we watch them anyway. But there are some other things that are not necessarily sinful, but perhaps distracting for our faith, like sporting events, for example. And I'm just saying this as a way of confession to you, <clears throat> because I might... Uh, be inclined to sit for hours watching a football game of my favorite sports team and, um, you know, just, just sitting there glued in front of a television, watching a bunch of dudes run around a field, playing a game and getting paid millions of dollars just to play a game, like a game, really. But um, that's what we do for entertainment, right? And the point is that these things are not necessarily sinful. They just, they just tend to distract us. There are some things like that that tend to distract us from the focus that we ought to have on Christ and pursuing him, right? If a weight is something that generally hinders, it may not be wrong. Sin is something which hinders, it is clearly wrong. Lay aside those weights. Lay aside that sin that ensnares you. And we usually know what that is for us. We know it pushes our buttons. We know it plays our desires. We know it tempts us. He says, lay those things aside. That's your responsibility. Maybe you're like Esau and a good meal does it for you. You need to take care with the food 
Maybe it is sex for you, cohabitating with someone who you're not married with or else pornography, which has ensnared you. Maybe it's selfishness. We don't tend to think about those kinds of things. You get angry easily with others. When things don't go your way, you have a short fuse and your relationships suffer. Maybe for you, you've been caught in a snare of self-centeredness. This is, again, related to selfishness. But the thing that ensnares you, as I mentioned earlier, is just thoughts of yourself. You're inwardly focused. You can't see past the edge of your nose. You become discouraged and depressed easily because you're so inwardly focused at everything that's wrong with your life. Yes, that is sin. Because God is the only one who's worthy of that kind of contemplation. The Holy Spirit, through the writer of Hebrews, says, lay it aside, put it away from you, cut it off, turn and run the other direction, repent. That's your duty. That's your job. Those things that particularly hinder you, that particularly ensnare you, you are to put them aside. I'm going to give you a few general truths to hold on to as we're thinking about being able to put these things aside. Romans chapter 6, Paul says that we're no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer held in captivity by sin. Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. We are free, beloved. We no longer have to obey sin. We don't have to bow down and kiss sin's pinky pinky ring. We don't have to do what it says. We don't have to be ensnared by it. We can say no. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. This is God's faithfulness. This is how invested God is in you and in your sanctification, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide you a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Doesn't always feel this way, but there is always a way of escape. There is a way to say no. There is a way to walk the other direction. There is a way to flee and to run in the other direction. There is a way to cut it off. Whatever the it might be in your life, you know what it is. There is a way to say no in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you got nothing. You have no ability, no power, no resources, no hope. You are a slave to sin and you're on your way to hell. That is the biblical truth. But in Christ, we have resources available through the spirit that he's given us, through the life he's given us to endure and to say no to sin. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, rightly, righteously and godly in this present age. I believe that's in Titus. I can't remember. It's chapter two or three. The grace of God has appeared teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldliness. And remember, again, another truth to hold on to. This is a team sport. You're not the only person who should know of your struggle, whatever that struggle is. Others likely struggle with the same sorts of things that you do and would probably be able to help you with it. But we can't help you if we don't know. I love 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Peter says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. In the context, again, in in, in 1 Peter, Peter is talking to believers who are suffering, particularly in the area of persecution. 
But his point is, look, guys, as you're, as you're being persecuted, as you're suffering, as you're trying to endure in the midst of persecution and suffering, you may be tempted to think, I am the only one who has this problem. And the Satan, the adversary who is walking around like a roaring lion, is stoking the fires of that thought in your mind. I believe that's what he's doing. He's going about looking for those who are weak and sick in the pack, right? And he's playing up that anxiety in your mind, that doubt in your mind that you're the only one who struggles with it. No one else around knows what's going on in your life or can help you. And once you fall into that, he's got you. But Peter says the same sufferings are being accomplished by other brothers and sisters in the world. This is not misery loves company in a negative sense. This is you can do it because others are doing it. And you need to understand that. But we're moving on. I'll take a step back again. Just for a second to think about this race analogy. When you're running a race, where's your focus? Of course, it's got to be at the end, right? The finish line. If it's one of those baton races, your focus may be on handing off the baton to the next runner. That's the end for you. But you're always looking ahead. Rarely do you see a runner looking behind them or beside them. And as we've been reminded again, going through Ephesians, we do not put off something without putting on something. We're not to think that we can, in Christ, remove some sinful habit without replacing it with something else. If we're ensnared in some kind of sin, some sinful attitude or action, whatever it might be, some weight weighing heavily around our necks, as we seek to become free, as we seek to put off that sin, we have to turn our attention from that sin to Christ. That leads us to our third point. In order to endure in this race, we must ultimately look to Jesus. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 again. Therefore, since we are surrounded... By so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Again, in the broader context of Hebrews, Jesus is the main point. As I mentioned at the beginning, all of what he says is to encourage them to keep looking to Jesus, keep trusting Jesus, do not fall away, do not turn away, do not fall back into your old habits and old system of worship. Those things were a shadow. Christ is the substance. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 is the climax of chapter 11, and really all of what he's led up to at this point, this is the pinnacle of the whole of faith. All of what he said about those who are faithful in this life, to whom we should look to gain strength to endure, has led us to this one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the faithful one. That our focus should be wholly on him is evident. The text says, looking to Jesus in verse 2. And in verse 3 it says, consider him. Look to him. Consider him. Think long on him. Set your focus and attention Set your mind wholly on him. Paul says that in Colossians chapter 3. Set your mind on things above. Keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is not a casual glance. It is a gaze. A long, pondering gaze on the person of Jesus Christ. If we had time, uh, we could develop this theme from the whole book of Hebrews. That would be a great study for you to read through Hebrews and take note of all the different ways that Hebrews 
points to Jesus and focuses on his person. He is the, he is the son. He is the appointed heir, the one through whom the world was made, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, the one who upholds all things by his power. The one seating at, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. The one who is better than the angels. The firstborn. The one whom the angels worship. The one whose throne is forever. The one who loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. The one who will remain. The one sitting at the right hand of God, waiting for God to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. This is Jesus. And that was just chapter one. Look to Jesus. Consider him. This one, the one who has been explained over the course of the previous 11 chapters, this one is the faithful one, the one to whom we are ultimately to look for strength to endure, the one whose faithfulness we are to emulate above all. I love this quote by John Piper. He says, we are fixing our gaze on the glory of the Lord, and we do that mainly in the word. We linger over the sweet and beautiful descriptions of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We marinate our minds receptively by faith in the crockpot of God's word. We fix our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, on Jesus. That was Paul's focus in Philippians 3 that we read earlier, to know Christ. And to know Christ at the end that he pursued it all the way to the end of his life. Christ was Paul's focus in life. But back to our text again, chapter 12, verse 2. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is what it says about him. He's the founder. Another translation says author. He's the chief cornerstone. All of our faith revolves around him, finds its origin in him, in the man Jesus Christ. There's no faith apart from him, and all who have faith have faith because of and in him. He's the perfecter or finisher of our faith. Along with the race analogy, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus is both the starting runner and the end runner. He begins the race for us, lets us take a few laps, and concludes the race for us. He's the strongest runner. Our hopes are in him, in his ability to finish strong, his ability to give us the victory in the end, and he does. And we are given his motivation as the ultimate example for us. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, the joy set before him. Jesus' motivation for enduring the cross and despising the shame was the joy set before him. Sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. Being given this place of honor in heaven. Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That was Jesus' motivation. Doing the will of his father, pleasing him in every way, and being rewarded for his service. Jesus' greatest joy was not, sorry for, you know, pop cultural Christianity, pop culture theology. Jesus' greatest joy was not just getting us to heaven. God is not some lovesick puppy who just really needs to have us in heaven because he misses us so much. Jesus' greatest joy was doing the will of his father. He said over and over again while he was on this earth, my food and drink is to do the will of my father. I've come down not to do my own will, but to do the will of my father. He wanted to do what pleased his father, and he knew that there was reward for him after he was finished, and he looked forward to that with joy. And the writer of Hebrews says that was Jesus' motivation. That ought to be our motivation as well, doing the will of our father in heaven and walking in the footsteps of Christ. Our motivation is not and feeling better. It's not in just getting through the trial. It's in doing the will of God. 
Verse 3 repeats again so that we understand this crucial point. He says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him. Again, one of the main complaints that I've heard that I've perhaps grumbled myself at times in times of weakness is that no one understands my pain. No one understands my trouble. Whenever someone tries to come close to encouraging us or challenging us in our faith, we respond, you just don't understand. You don't get it. You don't know how hard this is for me. Well, again, Jesus is here positioned as the faithful one, the one whose faith we should wholeheartedly admire and follow precisely because he has experienced the greatest suffering that anyone has or will ever experience. And how do we know that? It's not just because of the pain of the cross. You understand that, right? Jesus was a sinless man. We're sinful. When we suffer, we struggle with our own sin or someone else's sin. We, I mean, that's kind of part of what it means to live in a fallen world. This is all we've ever known. This is, this is, this is life for us. We're fish swimming around in the, uh, the fish jar who don't really understand anything other than living in water, right? We don't know what it's like to breathe air. Jesus has only ever breathed air. And so when he came to earth and he suffered a criminal's death at the hand of sinners, the same sinful wretches that he created. I think it's interesting when John opens in in, uh, the gospel of John and he says he was in the world and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. I think that is significant. Jesus came. We have to get this. Jesus came as a sinless individual. Of course, the second member of the Trinity is sinless, right? But when he was born in the flesh, he committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. And he lived his life the whole time trying to do the will of his father. And yet, these sinful wretches whom he created mocked him, abused him, and crucified him on a cross. You get the irony of that? Do you understand how incredibly insulting and shameful that is for the sinless son of God to hang on a cross, even though he committed no sin and his only desire was to do the will of his father? You and I don't understand what that's about. We suffer. We struggle. Our own suffering and our own struggles, the things that we deal with are not small, and I'm not making it small. Whatever you're struggling with this morning, whatever difficulties you're having, those things are significant for you. They're significant in your life. God knows that and he understands that. The point of this text is to say, look, if you feel like there's no one else around who understands what it means to suffer and struggle in the way you do, then you don't know Jesus. Because Jesus has suffered and he has struggled in ways that we will never comprehend as a sinless savior at the hand of wretched sinners. We don't know what that's like. We'll never know what that's like. But Jesus knows what it's like. Jesus can understand you struggling. Jesus can understand you suffering. And he says to us, when we suffer and when we struggle, if we need help, that in chapter 4, we should come boldly before the throne of grace. He says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus knows and he understands suffering. So as you suffer, you can go to him 
and he will give you the strength that you need to endure. You can look to him, and he will give you the strength that you need to endure. As believers, we trust and we believe, even if it doesn't feel that way, that Jesus is the one who is able to help, that he's the one able to come to our aid. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. I'll just say just a couple of more things, particularly as we think about those who seem to fall away. We all need exhortations to endure. We need to be told periodically that our responsibility before Christ is to endure in faith. We need to be told, keep believing, keep trusting. Doesn't matter how you feel. Doesn't matter if you think it's working. You need to keep believing and keep trusting in Christ. You need to keep looking to Christ. You need to remove any obstacles in your life that are preventing you from looking to Christ. That's what you need to do. Sometimes we just have to be told that. As we think about those who have fallen away, my guess is, They've long since shut off that voice in their life. But again, Hebrews 10.25, do not neglect the assembling, but encourage one another day by day. He says, keep doing that. Second and first, related to the first, again, this is a team sport. We need to engage in the lives of other believers. We need to think through the lives of those who've gone on before us, seek to derive um, encouragement from their faith, but also make use of the saints who are around you. We were talking about this this morning in our discipleship class. Discipleship is a team sport, something that we are all responsible to do, but we can't really do it if we're not engaged in each other's lives. If you don't, as someone who is struggling, go to someone else and say, I am struggling, I need help in this way. And if you don't, as someone who's not struggling, but who has perhaps struggled with anything, go to someone else and say, look, I love you. How can I help? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? It's our responsibility. Third and ultimately, a person who is in Christ can never fall away. It can never happen. A person who is legitimately a believer in Jesus Christ can never fall away. That is a truth that we have to understand. And that is because, as again, John chapter 10, Jesus says, God is the one who holds us in his hand. And he holds us fast. We're going to sing that in just a few moments here. Well, I don't like walking alone. Thankfully, in Christ, we don't have to. We are called to endure. Sometimes that's hard, but we can learn from the faith of those who've gone before us. We can, by his grace, lay aside every weight and sin that ensnares us. And even if we have no one left on earth that we can look to, that we feel we can find encouragement from, we can always look to Jesus, our champion, who is the author and perfecter of faith. We can look to him, and he will give us the strength we need. Amen? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it sanctifies us. Thank you for the, ex- the exhortation, the command, the charge to us that we ought to endure, that we must endure. Father, make that true of us and help us to hold one another accountable to endure in the faith for your glory and our good corporately. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.